Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Wes Windler, CEO and co-founder of Woven, a developer hiring platform that's raised over $11 million in funding. Wes, thanks for chatting with me today. Happy to be here. Yeah, so before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. So let's see. Uh, I'm originally from Oklahoma, which is not the technology capital of the world. Fell in love with computers, became a software engineer, and then fell in love with entrepreneurship at college built a failed startup, and then joined one that didn't fail and uh, learned a whole lot. Also, while managing people, learned that I'm autistic, and that made a lot of sense in my world. So I had a lot of uh, personal development in my mid-20s about how to actually relate to people and how everyone else worked, uh, or most other people worked. And after we sold that company, I founded Woven. I'm living in Indianapolis. I got two kids and i just i really love uh reading nonfiction books so we could talk about any any nonfiction book on on your mind and do the kids have the the w at the start of their name as well i see i see a pattern here so it's west winham windler and the company is woven where's the obsession with the w come from my wife is a product designer who is obsessed and very good at naming things so uh, I was not allowed to participate. I, I had a uh, I had a, a vote in naming our children, but I did not have uh, a say. And I think that's probably for the best. Uh, so we did not go with the W theme. We also can't paint everything in our house purple because that's too loud of a color. So I'm I'm happy to have a complementary skill sets in my household, <laughs> and my kids' names are much better for it. <laughs> nice. I love it. All right. Next question. There are a few questions here just to really you know, better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So is there a founder CEO that you look up to the most? And you know who is that? And, and why do you look up to them? So it can't be Elon Musk, because that's, I'd say, a little wild right now with the Twitter acquisition, uh, despite, you know, I think rockets, electric cars are, are pretty dang cool. I recently read Sam Walton's autobiography and learned about the history of Walmart and Man, I just have a lot of respect for him as a founder. Um, I, d- you, I didn't really think of Walmart as an organization that was founded, but obviously it was. It was in a small town in Arkansas. He's also from Oklahoma. So, you know, I got a little little crush there, a little home teamism. But the story of how he turned, he kind of invented an industry uh, and was always seeking to make his stores better, always like really new what his customer wanted and was able to drive through that. Innovated despite being not a technology person. They had this global satellite network way before it was common to send store data. Uh, he innovated in distributing decision-making down to individual to store managers. He was the kind of entrepreneur that if he's asking his team to work on a weekends because it's going you know, to retail, he was there right beside him. So he was like not afraid to get in it. There's stories about him going on vacation across the world with his family, and he would always stop in retail stores. And his perspective is it's easy to look at the competition and think, oh, man, I can't believe they're doing that dumb thing. But he approached every one of those visits 
as a way to learn what they are doing well. He would ask random store clerks like, all right, so when you order something on a Tuesday, when does it uh, ship in? Like, how do you handle it out of stocks? And he was doing this into his his 80s. So just uh, a man who was obsessed with this one mission to get quality products at a low price to people who really needed a low price. You know, that's not my life right now, but it, I think it's important to be aware that for just a lot of Americans, a lot of people in the world, getting something quality at a low price really does make their life better. And he worked freaking hard to make that happen. So Sam Walton is, is I'd say, underrated today. Nice. And I, I feel like, you know, no one really talks about these more, you know, old school entrepreneurs. A lot of founders I talk to, they'll say, you know, like Mark Benioff or, you know, people like that who are tech focused. But I think there are so many lessons to learn from these more, you know, old school traditional founders. And like you said, that's, it's kind of funny. Like Walmart's there. You know, it's big. I never think about the founding story. I don't think about it as, you know, entrepreneurship. I just think about it as the, the giant. It's always been, you know, my entire life. Right. And it was, you know, founded very much within our lifetimes and grew from the 70s from one tiny store where a guy got a loan from his father-in-law and ended up in a town and just grew it through a maniacal focus on customers and his mission and, and, you know, working really hard to find innovation. It's very much a technology founding story, even though, yeah, it's not the, it's not the one I see coming up in a lot of top 10 lists. Nice. I'll check it out. And what about, you know, what other books have had a huge impact on you as a founder and really influencing how you think? This is such a hard one for me because it's like I can like trace a lot of my worldview back to books I read, especially when I was young. I'm, you know, in Oklahoma and Indiana, it's not the booming tech scene of San Francisco where you can just really talk to a person who knows the thing. So I relied a lot on on books. So the one I'm going to pick, though, is a book called How to Measure Anything. So not the most technology of books. This one is a nerdy book about measurement as a concept. It's called How to Measure Anything. Mm. And the thesis is, you know, a common saying is like, you know, what really matters can't be measured. And there's you know, lots of truisms about like, you know, when a measure becomes a target, it becomes a good measure. There's like lots of things we feel. And the thesis of the book is you can't perfectly measure a lot of things that matters but you can get pretty dang close. And in a complex world, which if you're a founder, if you're a venture capitalist, if you're an executive, you live in a complex world. Having just a little bit of measurement, like the right amount of measurement, goes a long way to helping you sort through the complexity and make good decisions under uncertainty, good probabilistic decisions. So that's the that's thesis. So when everyone, anyone says, oh, you can't measure that, that book will teach you like, actually, yeah, you can. You can get pretty dang close. And it, it's a, like a very practical toolkit for thinking about, okay, what do I need to measure? Uh, they call it the value of information. And there's like, uh, you know, there's, there's equations, but you can skip them and you can just think about the concepts and say like, oh, this is the riskiest term. And then you can say, okay, how do I measure this? And then there's a toolkit for measurement. And it, measurement does not mean like, uh, you know, it's dollars. Sometimes it's survey data. Sometimes it's you're going to do these interviews and ask these sorts of product management, customer discovery type questions and collate the results. And that's way better than just like sitting in a room and asking. I think a lot of like what Amazon has been so successful when the data and the anecdotes conflict, maybe trust the anecdotes, is because anecdotes can create data. And we're pretty good at this. So, you know, if you get outside the building, 
So that's one of the best ways to do measurement is you get outside the building and ask questions and then put a little bit of analytics on top of that, a little bit of like collating that sort of information. And you can go from, I can't measure the most important thing to like, actually, yeah, I'm not perfectly measuring it, but I'm going to have a much better decision because I try a little bit to measure it. Nice. That's fascinating. And you're really coming in here with the uh, unique value adds. You know, you had a different founder than anyone's ever talked about and a different book. I would say 80% of people just say the hard thing about hard things or good to great. So very refreshing to hear some new ideas here. Those are those are also good books. But uh, if anyone really likes how to measure anything, they should hit me up on Twitter because you're you're my type of people. We should talk. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Now let's talk a bit more about what you're building today. So let's talk about Woven and the origin story behind the company. So like a lot of founders, I started the company because I had the problem. I was a new VP of engineering, hiring engineers. We raised venture capital and I hired three engineers and they were great. And I was great. You know, I had this gut that could really spot talent, feeling good about myself. And then I make the fourth hire and it was not great. Miss hires suck. A huge gap in my product roadmap, this big project for our most important customer, the biggest healthcare system in the country. And we're late because I make the wrong hire on a small team. Someone that was a good teammate, good values fit, but was not the right level of seniority to get accomplished what I needed and what I could do to support him. And that was my fault, not his fault. So I was, it was just pretty devastating at this point in my career. I knew that the number one reason the VP of engineering gets fired is because of the team, not the technology. I had recently read that. So I was like, all right, how do I never let this happen again? I don't, from a human level, from it just sucks, mishiring. So went and talked to a bunch of grizzled engineering managers, went and read all the IO psych literature I could in the library. Like, what, is, what does science say about predictive hiring? And the conclusion was kind of obvious. It's uh, if you're going to hire dancers, you should probably watch them dance. Oh, yeah. The uh, So I started doing that. I hadn't been doing it. For engineering, for me, that looked like a, like a three-hour project where you really build something the way that we build stuff. And that worked. I hired 20 more folks and they all succeeded, which was felt really good. Then about 2015, I went remote. So instead of, you know, who are the 10 qualified candidates in uh, Indianapolis this month? It was like every week, 100 great resumes in my inbox. And uh, 2015, it was a super big hack to go remote. Now, kind of everyone's remote, so it's not as huge. But I had a different problem. Uh, it's a Friday, I have 100 resumes in my inbox. I don't know how y'all feel about reading resumes. I do not like it. It is uh, very boring and frustrating and feels like low signal. So mostly on a whim, I sent a mass email to everybody who applied that Friday. I sent them my Watch Dancers Dance project and I just went home. Next week, I started getting results back and one of these projects, just outstanding. It's just, it's senior level work at least. And this is only a mid-level role. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked. It's not just, you know, code. It's like documentation and architecture. It's like, yes, go back and look at this can's resume. He has zero years professional experience. So the best candidate in my pool, someone that I 100% would have rejected based on the resume. And that was my like light bulb moment that there are these folks out there that the current way of hiring just can't spot them. So then, you know, some other things happen. Like I, I get really guilty because I have all these people that have put in this work and they're asking for feedback and I'm not giving them 
So I, on a weekend, hacked together something that would give them feedback based on some rubric work and just got overwhelming positive feedback from candidates. Like they were used to being ghosted and they just love getting any amount of feedback. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Then we go and sell that company, went from zero to 25% of the hospitals in the country. So it was a really great first job. Uh, And that gave me the chance to start something new. I was obsessed with this problem. I knew hiring, everyone said hiring was broken, but like, how do you actually fix it? And would have built the wrong project. Uh, If I would have just started building right then, I would have built absolutely the wrong thing. Uh, Turns out almost no one cares about mishiring. I I talked to someone who had uh, half their hires failed and he was like, yeah, it's like flipping a coin. So that was wrong problem. So customer discovery, built a product in 2018, realized that a third of our customers' hires were those hidden gem folks that like would have been missed uh, if you didn't have something like Woven. It's a technical vetting solution that you can use earlier in the process. The big reason most other vetting steps don't work is because candidates hate them, honestly. Like you can't use them with experienced folks, which are where we all struggle to hire. Uh, And we built something really focused on the experience of the candidate, which means candidates want real work, like that looks like the actual job and the actual role. They want feedback and they don't want an untimed like take-home test that takes forever. And if you do those things, uh, you kind of have to have people evaluate it because that work is fuzzy. We figured out how to have people evaluate it and scale that. And let's see, 2020, raised a seed round, kept growing. 2021, we launched a talent network, which is I'm really excited about. And then the end of the year, 2021, we raised our Series A and continue to grow and, and help companies eliminate the gap between talent and opportunity. Very interesting. And what types of companies are you seeing the most traction with? Are there any patterns there? It used to be pre-IPO unicorn type companies. So that was really where we took off last year. As you might see in the news, uh, that is, it's a group of companies that are now kind of struggling because that market has frozen up. So that's no longer a great uh, market, at least for us. Maybe other people are seeing different things. They're not hiring as many engineers for sure. So now it's actually these more established tech companies, like they, you know, they're not on the venture capital treadmill, so they have more consistency. A lot of them are doing digital transformations. They have to become a tech company. And for them, they need a consistent bar. They need to define what senior is and and hit that. And of course, provide a great can experience, move fast and be fair in their hiring. But that's really where we've uh, taken off lately is these more established kind of old name tech companies that they really need uh, quality in their hires. And why do you think these people and these companies were so okay with that idea of just mishiring? Because it seems like they really just accepted the status quo of it's just going to happen. Like, why do you think that is? This is uh, maybe I'm going to speculate here because I'm trying to guess on human psychology. But when you have a, a problem that is really painful, sometimes there's resistance to admitting that is the problem. So if you're a CTO and you're responsible for hiring and half of your hires fail, you kind of need to believe that that's just how hiring is. And you're right that hiring is very hard. uh, So you're not wrong there, but you kind of need to believe that that's just how it is versus like you're kind of incompetent at this thing. If you ask people, why did a hire fail? Nine times out of the 10, they will say it was not a culture fit. This word culture has become a word that we sometimes use to protect ourselves and it it becomes a catch-all. So I talked to someone who they hired an engineer, 
they did no vetting. Experienced engineer from a you know some a reputable tech company. That person never wrote in a single line of code the entire time they worked there. No one ever pair programmed with them. No one ever saw them do work. This person was caught like going to the bathroom to like avoid being at their desk. And from doing interviews, there are some software engineers that don't have to write code for their job. They do other things. They talk to people. They like click through systems. They like talk about databases. And this person hired someone like that. But why did they say it wasn't a fit? They say it was not a culture fit. So it's, I think it's like a self-protective instinct that we all have a little bit. If I'm being honest, I definitely have it. It's really easy for me to blame any ups and downs in my startup with like, oh, you know, macroeconomy or like, oh, couldn't have foreseen this. And in the how to measure anything, like the part about being a founder is you have to be both a true believer and optimistic to create the future. Like if you don't believe, no one will believe, but you also have to be able to look yourself in the eye and say like, ah, you know, that's, that is you trying to protect your ego. And in hiring, it's so emotional, so personal that we're all prone to that. And as a founder, how are you approaching and how do you think about market categories? Do you view this as a new category that you're really pioneering? Or is this transforming and disrupting an existing and established market category? That's such a hard question. So I've, you know, I read Play Bigger. I, I think that is a very attractive book. Uh, clearly, they have good examples. Those are very smart guys. Other things they write about, I'm like, oh, yeah, this jives. It's hard for me to know if category creation is a post hoc story or a thing that actually happens. You know, most categories, so Dave Kellogg writes about this, that most categories are actually named after the fact by some analyst that you never talk to. Like they name it and then you kind of put on the mantle. So I, I struggle with this. My answer is we are a niche within the existing category of technical assessments. I would like to create a category of call it technical vetting as a service. And there's some other folks kind of doing things in that space, but no one is out to buy technical vetting as a service. And we're a series A startup. So my answer right now is the best move, at least from my perspective, is we're a niche within the technical assessment category which I hate because I'm like, we're more than that. We do different things. We're not like that. Uh, but uh, I think it's got to be about what do the buyers and your potential customers think about. So I can mostly convince myself of what I just said. But to be honest, I'm kind of gritting my teeth as I as I say it. <laughs> I think that's the struggle that I hear from a lot of founders, right? They read Play Bigger and then they start thinking along those lines and they want to go out and create a category, but they don't think about and consider how hard it is to do that and how most companies who embark on that, you know, they do fail. So I'm glad to hear that you have, you know, logically separated that idea and you're, you know, focused on where you can, you know, best sell today. Trying to, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I see that a lot. Let's talk about traction now. So are there any numbers that you're okay with sharing? Sure. So we have millions of dollars in ARR and hundreds of customers and thousands of hires. It's kind of where we are right now. So we have a validated idea and repeatability, but we're still very much in the, you know, things are broken internally, trying to figure out how to scale things and frankly, nail some things. We're not even to the scaling part for some of our uh, pieces of the business. Got it. And what are you doing to stand out and really break through the noise? I feel like there's you know, probably quite a few startups in this space and have to imagine there's some established players as well. What are you doing to rise above all that noise? My two co-founders are all software engineers. I'm a software engineer. 
we have thus far focused on the product, on the candidate experience, and just relied on word of mouth, which is not, I would say, if I had advice for past Wes, it would be bring someone in earlier that is really good at marketing and marketing strategy, because I think it, it has been a challenge by just focusing on what we build. You know, it's the reason we're growing is we have candidates who will take you know, go through the experience while they're applying for a job and they'll bring us in, which is great, but it makes it hard to have a lever where you can spend dollars and grow faster. So I, I think it's mostly product for us, but I think that that can't be the answer forever to be very, uh, very transparent. I think it's hard to win on product alone in the long term, right? First time founders focus on product. Second time founders focus on distribution is the saying. And uh, I am starting to see why that is the case. <laughs> I love it. And in terms of your journey, you know, bringing this idea to market so far, what would you say has been the single greatest challenge you've faced? And how'd you overcome that challenge? This might be a, a cop on answer, but managing my psychology feels like the hardest part. It feels like when I have done a good job of that, that the problems are very tractable because people see me, we've got smart people. We have a lot. We're gifted with a lot of resources. We're able to raise venture capital. So many great founders can't do that or don't have an idea that's compatible with that. So we have so many advantages. And really, it's about not losing. And that sounds easy. It's like, just you know, keep your head together. But whenever we had five weeks of cash remaining and we're putting the other rounds, whenever uh, the economy changes and we're considering a layoff, whenever you have a function when there's only one person there and they put in their two weeks notice and you look across and you're like everyone else is overloaded. Uh, when your number one customer does a huge round of layoffs and ends up in uh, the national news and you're like, oh, where am I going to, where's that revenue gap uh, going to come from so that we can get cash? It's like each of those problems are very solvable, but there's most of those, there's been a multi-day more frankly, weak period where my head is wrong about it. And until I get it right, we're not going to solve it because we're putting energy towards the wrong things, just making fear-based decisions. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, a stereotype or a, a caricature about the, the practices that help you keep your head right. But for me, that, that has been the biggest challenge. I'm like a 1% on the, the big five personality, like neuroticism. I've taken that several times in my life. I, I usually end up in like the 99th percent least neurotic or like emotionally stable. But I've had times where I went to the dentist because I thought I had mouth cancer at one point in our startup's life. And they were like, do you grind your teeth at all? I'm like, no, I've never grind my teeth. Oh, crap. And I realized what's going on because I wish I was a psychopath, to be honest. I don't know if, if uh, people say that a lot, but man, this job would be a lot easier if you didn't care about the, the people impacted and the customers. So that's honestly my my biggest challenge. And it's something that it's really a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly battle. I appreciate the authenticity there. You know, most of the time I hear answers like, you know, hiring the right team, you know, raising funding, you know, things like that, which you know are for sure challenges, but they're you know, not very deep. They're you know, very like surface level. So that's really interesting to hear. You know, a follow-up question to that then is, you know, what do you do as a founder to really, you know, maintain your psychology and you know, make sure that you're, you know, making decisions in the best state of mind possible, given all of the craziness that comes with leading a tech company? So this is, I'm going to share what works for me. And I think 
people are wired differently and it might not be a good playbook for other people. But I've noticed this trend where folks will share advice on the extremes. So it's either like, you must be hustling, wake up at 4 a.m., you know, never stop working on one end. Or the other is like, I work 35 hours a week and I never work evenings. I never ask my team to work evenings. And that's kind of where we landed. And I'm very much in the middle. For me, I've had to work a lot of hours. I think someone much smarter than me would not, but that's not me. I can't work any smarter than I am. I'm already like maxed out on that. Uh, Believe me, I'm, you know, trying my best there. So for me, it's about when I am not working, I need to look at that time is very, I got to minimize the time that is not like actively being used for my family and things that when I look back on my week, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I spent that time. So specifically for me, I wake up before my family wakes up and that's a good time to do some work. I am fortunate in that I I need like six and a half hours of sleep uh, and then I'm good and I'm like pretty much peak. Uh, I think some people need eight and man, I'm glad I have an extra hour and a half a day. Oh, one weird fact I've learned is that on average, men and women need significantly different amounts of sleep to stay at their like cognitive best. So like we talk about gender diversity, I don't know how to fix this one, but on average, women need like 30 to 45 more minutes of sleep. Like if you look at HRV data and so like uh, feel very uh, privileged in needing less sleep. Anyway, so I get the right amount of sleep. So I really do need that six and a half. Six isn't enough. Five and a half is definitely not enough. And then it's wake up early, focus on the hardest thing, try to get outside. Then it's during the day, a lot of time blocking. For me, I am ADHD. I'm autistic. I got to, my style of working is I need to be working with another person, which that means lots of working sessions where we're like in a Google Doc or we're like writing something together. That's how I'm most productive. I also take Adderall. Like my company would not exist without it, uh, which is again, I feel lucky to have that option because Woven couldn't exist if I didn't have that support. I have an executive assistant, which I would recommend anyone who might identify as not neurotypical really look hard at that at least some of the time. For me personally, sometimes it takes me 15 minutes to write a 30 second email because I'm like trying to reword it to make sense from their perspective and look and it's like, okay, you could have just shipped something better. Someone else could write that in 30 minutes. And now I have someone who could do that. Then it comes to like, all right, in the workday, I stop at 630 every day. I have like a hard stop uh, and my daughter comes and bangs on my door to like make sure that happens, which has been really uh, focusing. Then I have two and a half, three hours with my family where I put my phone in the basket if I'm doing well. If I'm doing poorly, I will be scrolling Twitter while my daughter is talking to me and that is bad. Uh, and that's when I'm not doing, living up to my dadness. Then when my wife goes back to bed, I will do some more work. And I think there's a stigma around working evenings, which I think is not not very healthy because people have different lives. And if that's what helps you achieve what you're looking to do in your career and it's your choice, and uh, you are still able to focus on your family, I think that is actually okay. And I think sending emails and Slack messages under the expectation that people should not respond, uh, it's not a sync culture where that 930 email from the CEO, uh, you should have your notifications off on your email. And we we do talk about this, but that's, that's what it's taken for me to like not die. And my company has almost died several times. So it's not like I have a lot of wiggle room here, but that that's what it's, it's taken for me personally. And I'm lucky I really like what I do. Like 65% of this job is so much fun. I feel really fortunate and I get to spend a good amount of time with my family. But I do, you know, 
I spend less time on TikTok than my brain would like. Uh, that, that there's definitely good stuff there that I'm I'm missing out on. <laughs> what about what's the closest near death experience that you guys had as a company? Oh man, so we have been within five weeks of missing payroll, or at least you know having to make drastic changes that would have been horrible twice. So two times. One we had one we had a term sheet signed and we're just trying to get through diligence to, fast enough. Uh and you know everyone says it will take 30 days. Uh, you know it usually takes 30 days. It never takes 30 days. Or at least it hasn't anyone I talked to. Um so that was just like all right, we are going to a war room. We rented it we're a remote first company. We went every day. We just went together. I got my one finance person and we rotated an executive and we we're just cranking through diligence because uh, we don't have a finance team. We just have, you know, me and someone else. And then the other time was 2019. We had to re- we had to raise a big bridge round and we were three weeks of, I think we we're three weeks away at that point. And that's when I thought I had mouth cancer. And it's just, it's one of those things where a couple things bounce the wrong way. One conversation goes worse. Someone didn't have their coffee that you talked to. Uh, and this is a different story. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm living in this version of the, the multiverse. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who instantly assumes I have cancer when anything's wrong with my body. <laughs> <laughs> must be cancer. The other day, like my toenails, like has this like blood blister underneath it, and that was literally what I had to look up. Was like, can you get cancer in your toe? And luckily, it's just a blood blister, and I'm uh, I'm gonna be okay. It said online, WebMD has a, a enduring <laughs> business because of folks like me and you. They really do. I love it. All right, last question here for you. I know we're coming close on time. Well, if we zoom out into the future, what's the the five year vision of the company? I think from product lens for better and worse. So I think like what is going to be true in the world because Woven has grown and it's making a bigger impact. And one of the things that we have started doing is, so if you're a candidate, like every time you apply to a job, you're starting over, you can take your resume, but everything else you're starting from scratch. And if you're applying for a technical role, you have to do this, I mean, pretty onerous vetting process where you have like multiple interviews, someone's watching you program, which is like, the most stressful experience in the world to be like trying to type while someone's like looking at you and judging you. And you have to do this every job. And that means there are a lot of people who are ready for their next job and they're staying where they are because I have a friend who said, I don't hate this job as much as I hate interviewing. And I think that is really crummy because you only get one job. And I think it is really important that you're happy in it. So I, the thing we would like, to, we are building is the ability to do kind of a common application, if you will. So you can apply to one of our customers and everything you do on the technical vetting front and some like communication skills and uh, those sort of capabilities that are measured, you can then reuse that if that is not the right fit for you. So just making things better for candidates. Um, and it's like, you know, we're like 0.0000001% of candidates have that experience right now. And I think a world where candidates could expect that would be better for teams, better for candidates. And that's kind of the, the world I want to live in. And in five years, uh, maybe we're, we're a lot closer to that. Amazing. I love it. Unfortunately, we're up on time. So we're going to have to wrap here. But before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? You can go to woventeams.com or I am at Wes Winham, W-I-N-H-A-M, Wes Winham on Twitter. 
Amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share your vision and really just you know share more about how you think. This was, I think, one of my favorite conversations I've had so far. It was very authentic and very real. So thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Brett. It was a lot of fun. All right. Keep in touch. 